All right. Well, I would say, in my opinion, which I think is probably shared by many, that this day that we're celebrating today, which, by the way, is historically accurate in terms of the calendar. Now, we, we celebrate the birth of Christ December 25th, but we all know it's probably 99.9% .9 he was not born on December 25th, right? And we see the shepherds out in the fields watching their sheep, so it wasn't winter time. It was either fall or spring when he was born, and there's a lot of different ideas about that. But this day that we celebrate today, according to uh, Sir Robert Anderson, who was uh, quite a mathematical genius, he calculated and figured out, based upon Old Testament information, prophecies and so forth, that uh, Christ entered Jerusalem on the donkey, that was last Sunday, April 632 A.D., okay? So that's a pretty good estimate for when this took place. And so here we are a week later, and it's April 17th, right? So it's kind of cool to know that not only are we celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but it is a very historically accurate celebration. I want to begin this morning by pointing something out to you that I might be a little embarrassed to admit just dawned on me here recently as I was going back over what we would be talking about today. Maybe you'll find it interesting as well, but I go all the way back to the book of Exodus chapter 3. Remember, Moses fled Egypt. He, his picture was hanging in the post office. He was on the uh, Egyptian FBI most wanted list. He killed an Egyptian. He headed out to Midian, met Jethro, his future father-in-law, got married there and spent 40 years out there just tending sheep. Just him and the sheep. Not a lot of conversation going on. And then one day, 40 years later, he sees a bush on fire, not George. And, but the interesting thing was the bush was not being consumed by the fire. It just continued to flame. And then something even stranger happened. A voice emerged from the bush and began to speak with Moses. And, of course, we know that that was God talking to Moses. And uh, all indicators are that he, God and Moses hadn't spoken a lot for about 40 years. So um, I find things like this comforting. There are times when, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes you just feel like you're not much of a Christian. You ever feel that way? Man, I'm just, I'm blowing it. I'm not doing well. Really, pastor, you feel like that? Yeah, I do sometimes. I've got to be honest with you. I suspect you do too. But then I look at the Bible and I see the great men and women of faith and I see that they had some down times too, some dry seasons. Jacob was another one. David had his times when he was obviously not following God, so to speak. So here's Moses. He's uh, approached by God in the burning bush. God wants to send Moses back to Egypt to set his people free and Moses says, no deal. I don't want to do it. None of us have ever done that, have we? <laughs> Told God, no, I don't want to do that. And it goes on, and, and Moses tries to make the argument, of course, that he's not a good speaker and so forth. But uh, towards the beginning, here, let me read this section, Exodus three fourteen and 15. God said to Moses, because Moses 
asked God, well, Lord, you're wanting me to go, but who am I supposed to tell the people sent me? Who are you? Which is interesting that Moses would say that. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Not I was who I was or I will be who I will be. I am who I am because God is the eternal one, right? No beginning and no end. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Wow. Now we know God has many names. Jehovah, Adonai, Elohim, Yahweh. But he tells Moses, this name, I am, this is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. Now, interestingly, you go over to the New Testament. Jesus is having a conversation with his favorite adversaries, the Jewish rulers, the, the Pharisees, and so forth. And he says to them in John eight fifty six, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. He was 32, 33. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now do you think Jesus had poor grammar? Or is he telling these guys that he's God? I am. Before Abraham was, I am. God says that's his name forever. Jesus says, I am. Jesus very clearly declared himself to be God. And then to Martha, remember Lazarus was sick. Mary and Martha called for Jesus to come and heal him. Jesus deliberately delayed his coming. And in the meantime, Lazarus died. But the purpose behind that was for Jesus to exhibit his power over death by raising Lazarus from the dead. But as he's approaching the village of Bethany there, Martha comes out to meet him. And she tells Jesus, Lord, if you'd have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. But to cut to the chase, what he tells her in verse 25 of John 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Here, here it is again, I am. I am the resurrection. So not only was Jesus raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, he is the very embodiment of resurrection. He is the resurrection. He's self-resurrected, by the way, which is something only God could do. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in your word today as we discuss the most monumental event in history. We ask your blessing upon this study, and we pray anyone here today in doubt about their relationship with you, Father, anyone in doubt about the reality of the resurrection by the time we're done, I pray that, that they will have no doubt whatsoever that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. And because of that, we have hope of eternal life as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so again, I would, I would emphasize the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a myth. Some might try to say that it is. We'll talk about why it's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. 
It was not a mass hallucination. That's another excuse some people come up with. Or a psychosis. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical fact. In over 2,000 years, no scientist, intellectual, philosopher, atheist, or agnostic has been able to disprove it, or liberal theologian for that matter. Because, like it or not, and believe it or not, there are many so-called theologians and pastors out there who don't believe in the resurrection. Did you know that? They don't believe in much of anything. To them, the ministry is just a job. It's just a paycheck. But they have not been able to disprove it. And believe me, if they could have, they most certainly would have. And everyone would know about it. And I've probably mentioned this before to you in previous Resurrection Day celebrations, but there's a fantastic book by a guy named Frank Morrison who lived from 1881 until 1950. He was a journalist, and he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? How many of you have heard of that? It's a great book. I highly recommend it. And Frank Morrison was the literary pseudonym for a guy named Albert Henry Ross. That was his real name. And he was a journalist and novelist who grew up in Stratford-on-Avon, England. But let me read to you, amazingly, this review of his book from Amazon.com, which is not exactly a Christian website, is it? It says, The strangeness of the resurrection story had captured Frank Morrison's attention and influenced by skeptic thinkers at the turn of the century, so moving from the 1800s into the 1900s. He set out to prove that the story of Christ's resurrection was only a myth. His probings, however, led him to discover the validity of the biblical record in a moving, personal way. Now, another book that influenced me earlier on was uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. How many of you have ever read that? That's a great book, great apologetics book. Again, with many proofs regarding the resurrection. But Josh McDowell wrote that book as a believer. Frank Morrison started out writing his book as a non-believer. Powerful. Who Moved the Stone is considered by many to be a classic apologetic on the subject of the resurrection. Morrison includes a vivid and poignant account of Christ's betrayal trial and death as a backdrop to his retelling of the climactic resurrection itself. As a lawyer, Frank Morrison set out to write an expose on how impossible the trial and resurrection was, but after an exhausting study, the book he actually wrote was the opposite. As one book reviewer said, just like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, Mr. Morrison showed logically and diligently that after all of the facts had been weighed, the solution that is supported by those facts, however unlikely it may sound or look, would have to be the truth. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that I would believe, I would say, I would propose, and I think I'm right, the majority of the people who reject Christ and reject the gospel do not do it on the basis of facts, logic, reason, or rationality. They do it on the basis of feelings and emotions and second, third, fourth, and fifth-hand information. Because if you purely look, like Frank Morrison did, at the facts, then you cannot deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that presents us with another important issue, and that is, again, we're going to go through with a lot more reasons why the resurrection is true. 
But if indeed it is true, which, how many believe the resurrection is true? Then guess what? You don't have any choice but to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If he really did conquer death, and we all would like to conquer death, I think. Now some people will say, I don't know, man. If there is an afterlife, and it's anything like this life, then forget it. But the good news is it's nothing like this life. It's a gazillion times better. Because Jesus even told us, in this world you will have tribulation. Under the best of circumstances, and under the best of circumstances would be living your life for Christ on a daily basis. Still, you're going to have trials and tribulations. You're going to have sickness, disappointment, heartbreak. That's just part of what this life is all about because we live in a world cursed by sin. But how sad that the devil is able to deceive people into thinking, oh, I don't want any afterlife. This life's been bad enough. That's a deception from the enemy, isn't it? Because what awaits us, as Jesus told the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me where? Paradise. That's what awaits us as believers. Folks, there are many other similar stories of men and women who set out to disprove the claims of Christ only to become converts. However, my purpose here today is not to present all that evidence, but to make known the supreme importance of this event. Another one, interestingly, Flavius Josephus, he was a Jew, or Flavius Josephus, he was a Jewish historian in the first century. He wrote a book called The Antiquities of the Jews, and he has, in the context of that book, it's actually book 18, chapter 3, it's a whole series of books on the history of the Jews, he has a section on Jesus Christ. It's not really known if Flavius Josephus himself became a follower of Christ, but his observation is amazing. This is called the Testimonium Flavianum. For those who speak Latin or read Latin, that's the testimony of Flavius Josephus. About this time, he's speaking, of course, this time in the early first century, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. What an interesting statement. He was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. And we talked about this in Paul's writings to the Thessalonians that because people refused to receive the love of the truth, God will put a great deception upon them. By the way, we're in that time right now. We're in the time right now. And Josephus says that the people that he taught were those who would accept the truth gladly. Not all truth is pleasant. We know that, right? Some truth is painful, but Jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ, which means the Messiah the anointed one. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pharisees, Sadducees, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. They didn't walk away. They were scared for a few days, hiding, the apostles in hiding. But Jesus appeared to them in his resurrected body. 
they did not cease to love him. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life. So Josephus gives this as an historical account, as a matter of fact, that Jesus was the Christ and that he rose from the dead. For the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Interesting commentary by Josephus. One question you might want to ask yourself, was Jesus' resurrection the first time in history that such an event took place? The answer would be no. We find in the Old Testament several resurrections performed by prophets. One, Elijah, 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24, he raised the son of the widow of Zarephath to life. Secondly, Elisha, the, the uh, follower of Elijah who took his mantle upon him. Second Kings 4, 31 through 37, a man from the company of the prophets who accidentally drank some poison, poisoned food. Thirdly, a man who was thrown into Elisha's tomb next to his bones and rose from the dead. Second Kings 13, 21. So we have at least three documented resurrections in the Old Testament. And then we have three resurrections performed by Jesus in the Gospels. They're de described in some detail by the authors of the Gospels. One, the resurrection of the widow's son at Nain, the widow of Nain. Her son was raised by Jesus. We have the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. And then we have the resurrection of Lazarus, of course. And again, these accounts do not preclude the possibility of other resurrections, both before and during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. God is the creator and giver of life, is he not? He always has had and always will have absolute authority over the life and death of all that he has created. And there's a strong indicator in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul was stoned to death and raised back to life. And there was also a very interesting an amazing phenomenon that occurred at the very moment that Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. And by that he meant, my mission is complete. I did what I came to do. I died on the cross for the sins of the world. Remember he cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did the Father momentarily forsake Jesus? Because of your sin and my sin was placed upon him on that cross. But you know what happened right then? Matthew 27, 51 through 53. First of all, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two, not from bottom to top. The veil of the temple separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies, where only the high priest could enter and only once a year. That's where the, the Ark of the Covenant was, the Bema seat and all that. Only the high priest could go in once a year. That curtain separated the second section from the most holy section. And the curtain was ripped not from bottom to top, as if a mere man could have done that. It was ripped from top to bottom. Who do you suppose did that? God. God reached down from heaven and tore that curtain. And that symbolized that now all men, all women, not just the high priest, everybody had total and full access to the very presence of God through Jesus Christ. Okay? That's what that meant. And the earth quaked, 
the rocks were split. Whenever God's power is manifested, remember Moses up on Mount Sinai, the whole mountain was shaking and smoking and people were scared to death. The people down below didn't want to go near it. And we see throughout the Bible various times, various places, these manifestations of fire and earthquakes and smoke at the presence of God. So all this is happening. And look at this. This is amazing. The graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Keep in mind, these saints would have been Old Testament saints. But salvation has always been by faith by, uh, in God, not by works. And so the graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That, that verse slipped by me for many years, but it just blew my mind when I realized that at the very moment that Jesus cried out, it's finished, graves were opened and people came out of those graves. It's almost like the opposite of a zombie apocalypse. Instead of these evil zombies running around trying to eat everybody, these beloved saints of God go back into the city and begin to spread the word that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Pretty cool. And after Jesus had risen and ascended into heaven, the disciples held a board meeting, if you will, with Peter presiding. The same Peter who had denied Christ three times, right? See, again, be encouraged. God is a God of forgiveness, healing, restoration, second chances. Peter, other than Judas, you could argue that at the moment that Christ was betrayed, illegally tried and convicted and beaten to a pulp and crucified, Peter, other than Judas, was the worst of the bunch because he was right there outside in the garden, the area where they had taken Jesus in for his, his trial. And Peter denied him three times. And yet, now Peter is fully restored. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, or he's about to be. And he's in charge. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these, so there was a larger group of followers. There was the inner core of the twelve, and then there was another level of followers. Remember Jesus at one point sent out the 77? Remember that? And so Peter is saying from this larger pool of disciples, we need to find a replacement for Judas. Beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. To the apostles, that was the whole ball game. And Jesus even told them that ahead of time, that they were going to go out and be witnesses of his resurrection. So the apostles viewed their eyewitness account of the resurrection of Jesus as the focal point and cornerstone of their witness and testimony to the unbelieving world. 1 John 1.1. It starts out like John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we go to John, 1 John, that which was from the beginning, and that, he is speaking of Jesus Christ, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Remember Thomas putting his hands in Jesus' wounds and his hands in his side? Our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the big W, Word Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. Concerning the Word of life. That which was from the beginning. The, the verb was means was already in existence. So at the beginning, Jesus already existed, along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't mean that he came into existence, as in at creation at the beginning, but already in existence. That which was already in existence from the beginning of creation... And then he says, our hands have touched. The same Greek word is used in one of Christ's post-resurrection appearances. Luke 24, 39, he tells Thomas, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Now, interesting, one of the heretical teachings of Gnosticism is that Jesus did not have a physical body that he was merely a spirit or a phantom. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear and important that after his resurrection, he, he had a physical body before his crucifixion. How do you crucify a spirit, right? And then he had a new improved physical body after his resurrection. The next phrase here in 1 John 1, 1 that I want to touch on is where... John refers to Jesus as the word of life. And then he goes on in verse 2, the life was manifested and we have seen, again, the eyewitness and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Again, all of this, what John is saying, he's speaking of Jesus Christ. That eternal life which was with the Father and then was manifested to us here on earth. The point I'm trying to make here is that another validation of the resurrection is the dynamic, dynamic and powerful eyewitness testimonies that we see throughout the New Testament. Jesus is referred to as the life, John 14, 6. Jesus himself said, I am the way. Here it is again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus not only offers to us life, he, just like he is the resurrection, I said at the beginning of the message, I am the resurrection. He says, I am the life. Jesus is the very source of life. So how can you truly possess life if you don't possess Jesus? How do you possess Jesus? By acknowledging him as your Lord and Savior, the one who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead, confessing your sins to him, inviting him to take up residence inside of you. He comes and lives inside of us via the Holy Spirit. We, we tend to define life as the biological process by which our body functions, right? But guess what? This is just a vehicle. You've heard me use this analogy before. I'm assuming just about everybody here has at least one car and four motorcycles. <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to <laughs> Marla putting her hand in her. Face in her hand. 
But your car is not you, right? Some people kind of think it is. Especially you have a Corvette or a Maserati or a La- one of those really snazzy cars. And then um, I guess there's the uh, Transformers, you know. <laughs> but your car isn't you. It's your vehicle, right? You come out of your house, you get into your car, you start it up, you t- drive it where you need to go, park it and get out of it. The car is just your vehicle. These bodies are just our vehicles. And just like our cars wear out, these bodies wear out. But our spirit, that's the part of us that's created in the image of God. It goes on forever, either for good or for bad. Those who are counting on no existence after death to escape hell are in for a shocking surprise. We are created as eternal beings, and you will either live forever in the presence of God, or you will experience an eternal conscious death in Hades and hell apart from God. Those are your only two options. And as I said earlier, if the resurrection is true, if it's real, and it is, if anybody could have disproven it, they would have done it by now, and they haven't. And others have tried to and became believers. If it's true, you have no choice but to yield your life over to God. Why would you not? If Jesus is the only one in the whole universe who can give you eternal life in paradise, why would you say no to that? Makes no sense whatsoever. All right. The life. So God says, my name is I am. And again, he has many names. And Jesus has many names. One of those names is the life. Jesus is the life, according to John. Think about this. If Jesus had not risen, he would only be known as the death. If you've ever seen the movie Princess Bride, there's a sword fight between the two lead guys. I don't remember his name, what his name was in the movie. Carrie Elwes. He's the one who rescues the princess. And then there's Inigo Montoya, I think, was the other guy. And they're getting in. And the guy says, to the death? And he goes, no, to the pain. (laughs) Do you remember that? To the pain. But if Jesus hadn't risen, he would simply be known as the death, not the life. The one who died on the cross for our sins. Yes, he died. The good news is death could not keep him down. And we know from our studies in the Gospels that Jesus spoke repeatedly of his impending death and resurrection. And again, the apostles, the disciples, the future apostles, uh, chose to ignore all that, didn't want to hear it. But he spoke of his death and his resurrection as the miraculous sign that would prove his deity and his capacity to bring salvation to all men. John 2, 18 through 22 The Jews, big J, the big Jews, the big guys, kind of like Joe Biden, the big guy. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? So they're already contradicting themselves. They've already admitted that Jesus has displayed miraculous powers 
And then they say, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? We want another sign. And see, for people who are not truly operating in the realm of faith, how do we come to salvation through Jesus Christ? It's uh, by grace, God's grace ministered to us through faith, right? Peter wrote to his uh, folks that he was writing to, you have not seen him, but you love him. How many here today can say the same thing? And yet these so-called Jewish spiritual leaders, it was never enough for them. Since you've done all this, what other sign are you going to give us to prove that you really are who you say you are? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 40 years to build this temple. They thought he was talking about Herod's temple. He was talking about the temple of the Holy Spirit, his body. It's taken 40 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So again, Jesus predicted it. People didn't believe it. They didn't listen. They didn't understand it. And yet once it occurred, it really solidified the faith of all those who were true believers. Throughout their three years with Jesus, the disciples were caught between belief and unbelief. Remember Jesus referred to them, Oh, you of little faith. If you just have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. What sealed the deal for the apostles and launched them into worldwide ministries that turned this world, I believe it was Greg Laurie said, not upside down, but right side up. It was the resurrection that sealed the deal. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. This is a dynamic passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, written by the Apostle Paul regarding the resurrection. In verse 12 he says... Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, and by if he means, yeah, that's what we're preaching. If Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, and that was the message, Paul said, I preach Christ and him crucified and also risen from the dead. How do some among you Corinthians say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, nothing in the Greek background of the Gentile converts at Corinth would lead them to believe in the resurrection of the dead. In general, the Greek belief and understanding was that there was immortality of the soul, but not of the resurrection of the body. This was brand new to them. And so Paul says, we're preaching the resurrection, and yet some of you say there is no resurrection. What's up with that? And then in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. So if, there's, if it's not possible, and by the way, you probably know this already, you've heard it here or somewhere else, the Sadducees, who were the top of the top there in Israel at the time of Christ, they were the high priests, they were wealthy, they were liberal, they didn't believe in miracles, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, the Sadducees. And so they actually had a lot in common with these Greeks, there's no such thing as bodily physical resurrection and again the Gnostics would have a problem with that because they believe that flesh was corrupt 
that only the soul could be saved. They believed that Jesus was a spirit, not a physical, literal physical human being. But if there's no resurrection, if that's not possible, then the bodily resurrection of Christ is untrue. Verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. You see, if Jesus isn't risen, folks, that's why I say this is the most monumental event in history, then I'm wasting my time here today and so are you. Now, there are other religions that will promise you peace, you can meditate, you can you know, clear out your mind, you can uh, work on your karma and so forth. I like those karma apples myself, they're pretty tasty. Even just a karma by itself is really good. But you see, only Christianity, only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his son Jesus Christ, can give us the sure and certain hope of eternal life. Not just as a floating phantom spirit, but as a real, tangible, touchable entity. Jesus died for every part of us, body, soul, and spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 15, Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. So Paul is clearly stating to the Corinthians that everything he believes, everything he is as an apostle, as the, the um, apostle to the Gentiles, rests upon the foundation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it makes perfect sense that every wishy-washy, wimpy, watered-down liberal church would downplay and even deny the resurrection. And many do. Paul says if there's no resurrection, the preaching of the gospel is a lie. Verse 16, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile or futile. You are still in your sins. And again, that's the whole point. And that's where many people miss the point and misunderstand and misconstrue like Hinduism, you know, Confucianism, all these other belief systems that focus on you trying to be a good person, right? No, the whole point is we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every human being is a sinner. How many sins does it take to make you a, a sinner? We've, none of us have done more than one, have we? It only takes one. See, God is sinless. He is perfect, holy and righteous and just. And there's no other remedy for sin but the blood of Christ. And there's no other remedy for death but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there's no resurrection, the Christian faith is without meaningful content and we are lost in sin without hope of redemption. 
Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now we know that even people who are not true believers try to comfort one another with, they're in a better place now. Oh, you'll see them again one day. But the fact of the matter, that's, those things are only true if you have truly embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Otherwise, you're giving people false hope. If there's no resurrection, then all of our loved ones in Christ who have passed from this life are lost forever, and we will never be reunited with them, but we will. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Again, because everything that we believe, everything that we stand for, the foundation of our faith, rests upon the resurrection. Folks, you cannot be a true believer, a true follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, a born-again believer filled with the Spirit of God, unless you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not optional. There's a number of things, by the way, that are not optional, which have also been tossed out by many churches and many so-called believers today. Do you realize that the virgin birth is not optional? The fact that God supernaturally placed that baby Jesus within the womb of Mary, that's not optional. Another good argument against abortion, by the way. There are many. That Jesus Christ lived a perfect, sinless life because otherwise he couldn't have been the sacrifice for our sins. And yet, do you know that about a third of so-called evangelical Christians believe that Jesus sinned? No, no, no. That's not negotiable, folks. There are some non-negotiables regarding the Christian faith. And if you don't embrace those non-negotiables, then you cannot truly identify yourself as a believer. And the resurrection is at the very heart of it. The supernatural conception by Mary through the Spirit of God, the perfect sinless life of Christ, the fact that He is fully God and fully man, non-negotiable. And virtually every cult group denies the deity of Christ. Go down the line. Not negotiable. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. And so there, there might be some who would say, well, you know, Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, good principles. You know, even if we don't believe in all that supernatural hocus pocus, we can still live a good life just by following his teachings. Not according to Paul. Paul says if you don't believe that he's risen and yet you identify as a Christian, you're the most pitiful person of all. Because your whole faith is based upon a lie. The feel-good, self-help, purpose-driven gospel is a sham because the hope of the believer has to do with eternal life, not the temporary existence we find ourselves in here on earth. These feel-good, self-help, purpose-driven gospels emphasize being happy here and now. Well, there's a lot of people who are not believers who are really happy here and now. 
They have all the things that this world could offer. And they think they've got it good. I mean, we would be foolish to sit here this morning, or stand here in my case, and say that oh, all those non-believers out there are just miserable. The Bible says sin is profitable or enjoyable for a season. But at the end of the day, you have to pay the piper. And any so-called gospel message that emphasizes the here and now over eternity is a false gospel. If there's no resurrection, then we are the fools of all fools. We are the sadly deceived, deluded, misguided robots that the world makes us out to be. But however, all of this is not the case because as Paul says in verse 20, if you've noticed, we're going through several verses here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, after having said all that that Paul just said to make his case for the resurrection, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul is a lot like this guy we talked about at the beginning, Frank Morrison. Paul didn't start out as a believer in Jesus Christ. He hated Jesus. He hated Christians. He went around the countryside seeking to arrest them, put them in jail, and ultimately execute them. He was a hardline, hardcore, legalistic Pharisee. But guess what? He met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and started singing a new tune. That's the message. The guy that wrote this message now Christ is risen from the dead. I saw him. He knocked me flat. But his light blinded me. And he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let me read the first eight verses of this chapter 15. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Of course, by buried it means placed in the tomb, right? Not under the dirt like we do it. In that tomb. And that He was buried, He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas. How many of you know who Cephas is? Peter, right? He was seen first by Peter. And again, Peter who denied him got a first look. Isn't that cool? Then by the twelve, of course, minus Judas, the twelve is a name for the, even though one of them was no longer there. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at one time. And that's where the hypothesis of the mass... Um, Hypnosis or mass uh, delusion came in. I forget the exact term that I used. That 500 people were all simultaneously deluded and deceived and saw a false apparition. But he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. When Paul wrote this, most of those witnesses were still alive, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me, Paul, also, as, one, as by one born out of the time. In other words, or out of due time. The reason Paul was qualified to be an official apostle, along with Peter, James, and John, and the rest, 
is because he personally had seen the risen Christ. That was a requirement. That was a criteria. And Paul met that criteria out of due time, after the others, when he saw Christ on the road to Damascus. Folks, you do realize, don't you, that court cases have been decided on the basis of far fewer eyewitnesses than this? The Old Testament it says that everything should be established out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. Here we have over 500. And these men, the apostles, the apostle John in particular, giving dynamic account of their eyewitness experience with Christ, seeing him, touching him, hearing him. Paul tells us that the very essence of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For it is the resurrection that seals the deal. It's the certification of Jesus' successful fulfillment of God's plan to redeem mankind. Part one is when he died on the cross, paid the price for our sins. Part two is when he rose from the dead. Without the resurrection, it would have been incomplete. On the cross, Christ paid the price for our sins. When he rose, he conquered death and guaranteed that all those who believe in him would also one day be raised to live forever with him in paradise. 1 Corinthians 15, 55-58. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. Paul wrote in the book of Romans, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. Why does the law kill? Because we can't keep it. In order to be saved under the law, you can't sin even one time. You tell one lie, you're done. You steal one thing, you're done. The law kills. The Spirit gives life. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. And this is why it's important to be constantly renewing, refreshing, rejuvenating our belief in, our understanding of, our commitment to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. This will strengthen and sustain your faith in the face of all opposition and obstacles. Do you realize that? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And again, if you've embraced a faith, and I don't believe anyone here today has, I don't know, but if you've embraced the kind of faith that's focused on the things of this world, prosperity, you know, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, <laughs> you know, if you just have enough faith, God's going to fill up your bank account. I don't know how many of you ever heard of Marilyn Hickey. She was a faith teacher out of Denver, and she, was, she said she would talk to her wallet. And, you big fat wallet, you're so full of money. I mean, it's hard to believe. Does it, it doesn't sound real, does it? But it is. If you've embraced a faith that's focused on the things of this world, how, I've seen so many people broken, their faith destroyed, because they embrace these kinds of teachings where if you have enough faith, that, that person won't die, your husband won't die, your wife won't die, your father won't die, and they die. Why? Because everybody dies. Duh. But they've been taught that if you have enough faith, they won't die. If you have enough faith, 
you won't have bad health. If you have enough faith, your bank account will be full at all times. What if you're just bad with money? What if you have a lousy job and you don't make very much money? Well, you can try to improve yourself and get a better job, but it has nothing to do with name it and claim it. Prosperity. Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise from the dead to fill your stinking bank account. He died on the cross and rose from the dead so that you could be forgiven of your sins, which, by the way, if are not forgiven, they're terminal. They will kill you, not only physically, but spiritually. That's what Jesus died for. One more time, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Paul says, but if there's no resurrection, he goes over a whole list of things. Your faith is futile. You'd be pitied above all men. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean, the first fruits of all? We already talked about the fact there were some resurrections in the Old Testament. Jesus performed some resurrections. And even as he cried out, it is finished, some people rose from their graves and went into town. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Your mom, your dad, your grandma, your grandpa, who's been dead for some time, comes walking in the door. wonder how many heart attacks there were in there. But what this means, folks, you see, all those raised before Christ and by Christ ultimately died again. Yeah, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but guess what? He still died again because he lived in a body cursed by sin. Jesus is the first one in human history because he is fully God and fully man, human. He's the first one to be raised never again to die. He's the first fruits, and we will follow him in a resurrection that leads to eternal life. He's the first in a long line of immortal, incorruptible, imperishable beings. And everyone here today who has believed and placed their hope in the resurrected Son of God will follow in his footsteps. Let's stand. Now, before we have our overarching prayer, for prayer requests, I want to have a, let's all bow our heads, close our eyes, focus on the Lord. I want to see if there's anyone here today who would like to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've not done that previously. You can't really say that you're a true believer, a true follower of Christ, but you want to be saved. You want to know God. You want to be forgiven of your sins. If there's anybody like that, please raise your hand right now so I can pray for you. Anybody? Okay, I see one, two, three, several. Praise the Lord. Okay. I want to, I'm going to pray a brief prayer, and I'd like to ask those who raised their hands, and even some who may not have raised their hands, but you wanted to, follow along and pray with me this prayer. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. I thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for me. Lord Jesus, please wash me and cleanse me from every sin. I acknowledge you now 
as my Lord and Savior. And I invite you to come and live inside of me, to make me a new person. And I thank you for the precious gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> I would encourage you, if you prayed that prayer this morning, come and talk to one of us afterwards. Let us know that you've made that decision and that commitment, and we can do some things to encourage you in your new life in Christ. Now, if anybody has a prayer request of any other nature, please raise your hand. Okay. Father, we lift all these up to you. We start by thanking you for all the prayers that you have answered. Lord, sometimes we tend to focus on the ones that we feel like haven't been answered, but we know that not every prayer is answered immediately. Not every prayer is answered the way we want it to be. But you are a faithful God. You're a good God. You're a loving God. And we thank you for all the blessings and all the answered prayer that we have seen in our lives, in our church. But I lift each one up to you now, Lord. I pray first of all for health issues. Lord, whether it's allergies or uh, other respiratory issues, Father, flu, there's a lot of that going around, colds, whatever it might be from the smallest illness to the largest. Lord, we know it's all the same to you. You have all, over, all authority over life and death. You have all authority over sickness and disease. And Lord, we lift each one up to you now and we pray for healing in Jesus' name. Not because we deserve it, but because you're a loving Heavenly Father and you do care for your children. So we pray for each and every illness represented here today by those raised hands. Lord, even some who may not have raised their hands, we ask that you'd pour out your healing, Lord, upon arthritis and respiratory illness. Lord, every kind of sickness, cancer, Lord, it's all the same to you. And we do pray for your healing power to come upon each one now in Jesus' name. Lord, we lift up financial issues. We talked this morning about how the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And yet we do have physical needs here on earth, Lord, and you promised to take care of us. So we lift up those needs to you now, whether it's for housing, shelter, food, clothing, income, jobs. Lord, all these things that, that do matter here on earth, we have to have them. We know that you're our provider, but you do provide through normal, physical, practical means in many cases. So we just lift all that up to you now and pray that everyone's needs here would be met. Anyone that's being prayed for today, Lord, that you would take care of them and provide for them. In Jesus' name, and that you'd give us the strength and the hope and the faith and the trust to hold on to you through difficult times as well as the good times, Lord. Pray that we won't forget you during the good times and that we'll be quick to call upon you 